millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Eli Reads. Well, I guess it had to happen. It wouldn't be a real podcast without a note somewhere about uploading something wrong. And this is that note. The bonus episode of Flaubert's Erotic Diaries uh, contained the wrong audio. So I fixed it now. (sighs) If you've already downloaded that, you can delete it and re-download to get that bonus episode with the right audio in it. Sorry about that. This is chapter 11 of Salambo by Gustave Flaubert. And this is basically the Me Too chapter. Hashtag Me Too. Salambo has been basically told by her priest, Shahbarim, to seduce Maso and steal the Zamph, which is essentially the symbol of Carthage's power. Even though it's clear she doesn't really understand the implications of seducing Maso. The golden chain that runs between her feet is unbroken, remember. Now, I'm not going to give Flaubert credit for being woke. He was a white French guy living in the 1800s who was obsessed with Egyptian prostitutes. But his facility for unflinching description, for trying as hard as he can not to take sides, makes his account of Salambo's seduction of Matho harrowing. It's got a couple of indulgent, sensual flourishes, but for the most part, this is like a waking nightmare. The crazed look in Matho's eye. His unexpected wimpiness. He blows hot and cold. He's kind of a corny indie fuck. It's not clear exactly what happens in the tent, but it doesn't feel like love. It feels like obsession and a desire to possess. And just when you think she's gotten away, Salambo's dad marries her off to Narhavas. Thanks, Dad. Chapter 11. In the Tent. The man who guided Salambo made her ascend again, beyond the pharos, in the direction of the catacombs, and then go down the long suburb of Maloya, which was full of steep lanes. The sky was beginning to grow gray. Sometimes palmwood beams jutting out from the walls obliged them to bend their heads. The two horses which were at the walk would often slip, and thus they reached the Tevest gate. Its heavy leaves were half open. They passed through and it closed behind them. At first they followed the foot of the ramparts for a time, and at the height of the cisterns they took their way along the Tania, a narrow strip of yellow earth separating the gulf from the lake, 
and extending as far as Radies. No one was to be seen around Carthage, whether on the sea or in the country. The slate-colored waves chopped softly, and the light wind blowing their foam hither and thither spotted them with white rents. In spite of all her veils, Salambo shivered in the freshness of the morning. The motion and the open air dazed her. Then the sun rose. It prayed on the back of her head, and she involuntarily dozed a little. The two animals rambled along side by side, their feet sinking into the silent sand. When they had passed the mountain of the hot springs, they went on at a more rapid rate, the ground being firmer. But although it was the season for sowing and plowing, the fields were as empty as the desert, as far as the eye could reach. Here and there were scattered heaps of corn. At other places the barley was shedding its reddened ears. The villages showed black upon the clear horizon, with shapes incoherently carved. From time to time a half-calcined piece of wall would be found standing on the edge of the road. The roofs of the cottages were falling in, and in the interiors might be distinguished fragments of pottery, rags of clothing, and all kinds of unrecognizable utensils and broken things. Often a creature clothed in tatters, with earthy face and flaming eyes, would emerge from these ruins, but he would very quickly begin to run or would disappear into a hole. Salambo and her guide did not stop. Deserted plains succeeded one another. Charcoal dust, which was raised by their feet behind them, stretched in unequal trails over large spaces of perfectly white soil. Sometimes they came upon little peaceful spots where a brook flowed amid the long grass, and as they ascended the other bank, Salambo would pluck damp leaves to cool her hands. At the corner of a wood of rose bays, her horse shied violently at the corpse of a man which lay extended on the ground. The slave immediately settled her again on the cushions. He was one of the servants of the temple, a man whom Shahabarim used to employ on perilous missions. With extreme precaution, he now went on foot beside her and between the horses. He would whip the animals with the end of a leathern lace wound round his arm or would perhaps take balls made of wheat, dates, and yolks of egg, wrapped in lotus leaves from a scrip hanging against his breast, and offer them to Salambo, without speaking, and running all the time. In the middle of the day, three barbarians, clad in animal skins, crossed their path. By degrees, others appeared, wandering in troops of ten, twelve, or twenty-five men. Many were driving goats or a limping cow. Their heavy sticks bristled with brass points, Cutlasses gleamed in their clothes, which were savagely dirty, and they opened their eyes with a look of menace and amazement. As they passed, some sent them a vulgar benediction, others obscene jests, and Shahabaram's man replied to each in his own idiom. He told them that this was a sick youth going to be cured at a distant temple. However, the day was closing in. Barkings were heard, and they approached them. Then in the twilight they perceived an enclosure of dry stones shutting in a rambling edifice. A dog was running along the top of the wall. The slave threw some pebbles at him, and they entered a lofty, vaulted hall. A woman was crouching in the center, warming herself at a fire of brushwood, the smoke of which escaped through the holes in the ceiling. She was half hidden by her white hair, which fell to her knees, and unwilling to answer. She muttered with an idiotic look words of vengeance against the barbarians and the Carthaginians. The runner ferreted right and left, 
Then he returned to her and demanded something to eat. The old woman shook her head and murmured with her eyes fixed upon the charcoal. I was the hand. The ten fingers are cut off. The mouth eats no more. The slave showed her a handful of gold pieces. She rushed upon them, but soon resumed her immobility. At last he placed a dagger which he had in his girdle beneath her throat. Then, trembling, she went and raised a large stone and brought back an amphora of wine with fish from Hippozoritis preserved in honey. Salambo turned away from this unclean food and fell asleep on the horse's caparisons which were spread in a corner of the hall. He awoke her before daylight. The dog was howling. The slave went up to it quietly and struck off its head with a single blow of his dagger. Then he rubbed the horse's nostrils with blood to revive them. The old woman cast a malediction at him from behind. Salambo perceived this and pressed the amulet which she wore above her heart. They resumed their journey. From time to time she asked whether they would not arrive soon. The road undulated over little hills. Nothing was to be heard but the grating of the grasshoppers. The sun heated the yellow grass. The ground was all chinked with crevices which in dividing formed as it were monstrous paving stones. Sometimes a viper passed or eagles flew by. The slave still continued running. Salambo mused beneath her veils, and in spite of the heat did not lay them aside through fear of soiling her beautiful garments. At regular distances stood towers built by the Carthaginians for the purpose of keeping watch upon the tribes, and they entered these for the sake of the shade, and then set out again. For prudence' sake they had made a wide detour the day before, but they met with no one just now, the region being a sterile one. The barbarians had not passed that way. Gradually, the devastation began again. Sometimes a piece of mosaic would be displayed in the center of a field, the sole remnant of a vanished mansion, and the leafless olive trees looked at a distance like large bushes of thorns. They passed through a town in which houses were burnt to the ground. Human skeletons might be seen along the walls. There were some, too, of dromedaries and mules. Half-gnawed carrion blocked the streets. Night fell. The sky was lowering and cloudy. They ascended again for two hours in a westerly direction when suddenly they perceived a quantity of little flames before them. These were shining at the bottom of an amphitheater. Gold plates, as they displaced one another, glanced here and there. These were the cuirasses of the Clinabarians in the Punic camp. Then in the neighborhood they distinguished other and more numerous lights, for the armies of the mercenaries, now blended together, extended over a great space. Salambo made a movement as though to advance, but Shahabaram's men took her further away, and they passed along by the terrace which enclosed the camp of the barbarians. A breach became visible in it, and the slave disappeared. A sentry was walking upon the top of the entrenchment, with a bow in his hand and a pike on his shoulder. Salambo drew still nearer. The barbarian knelt, and a long arrow pierced the hem of her cloak. Then as she stood motionless and shrieking, he asked her what she wanted. To speak to Matho, she replied. I am a fugitive from Carthage. He gave a whistle, which was repeated at intervals further away. Salambo waited. Her frightened horse moved round and round, sniffing. When Matho arrived, the moon was rising behind her. But she had a yellow veil with black flowers over her face, 
and so many draperies about her person that it was impossible to make any guess about her. From the top of the terrace, he gazed upon this vague form, standing up like a phantom in the penumbra of the evening. At last, she said to him, Lead me to your tent. I wish it. A recollection which he could not define passed through his memory. He felt his heart beating. The air of command intimidated him. Follow me, he said. The barrier was lowered, and immediately she was in the camp of the barbarians. It was filled with a great tumult and a great throng. Bright fires were burning beneath hanging pots, and their purpled reflections illuminating some places left others completely in the dark. There was shouting and calling. Shackled horses formed long straight lines amid the tents. The latter were round and square, of leather or of canvas. There were huts of reeds and holes in the sand such as are made by dogs. Soldiers were carting faggots, resting on their elbows on the ground or wrapping themselves up in mats and preparing to sleep. And Salambo's horse sometimes stretched out a leg and jumped in order to pass over them. She remembered that she had seen them before, but their beards were longer now, their faces still blacker, their voices hoarser. Matho, who walked before her, waved them off with a gesture of his arm which raised his red mantle. Some kissed his hands. Others, bending their spines, approached him to ask for orders, for he was now veritable and sole chief of the barbarians. Spendius, Autoritus, and Narhavas had become disheartened, and he had displayed so much audacity and obstinacy that all obeyed him. Salambo followed him through the entire camp. His tent was at the end three hundred feet from Hamilcar's entrenchments. She noticed a wide pit on the right, and it seemed to her that faces were resting against the edge of it, on a level with the ground, as decapitated heads might have done. However, their eyes moved, and from these half-opened mouths, groanings escaped in the Punic tongue. Two Negroes holding resin lights stood on both sides of the door. Matho drew the canvas abruptly aside. She followed him. It was a deep tent, with a pole standing up in the center. It was lighted by a large lamp holder shaped like a lotus and full of yellow oil wherein floated handfuls of burning tow, and military things might be distinguished gleaming in the shade. A naked sword leaned against a stool by the side of a shield, whips of hippopotamus leather, cymbals, bells, and necklaces were displayed pell-mell on baskets of esparto grass. A felt rug lay soiled with crumbs of black bread. Some copper money was carelessly heaped upon a round stone in a corner, and through rents in the canvas the wind brought the dust from without, together with the smell of the elephants, which might be heard eating and shaking their chains. "'Who are you?' said Matho. She looked slowly around her, without replying. Then her eyes were arrested in the background, where something bluish, sparkling, fell upon a bed of palm branches. She advanced quickly, a cry escaped her. Matho stamped his foot behind her. Who brings you here? Why do you come? 
to take it, she replied, pointing to the Xanth, and with the other hand she tore the veils from her head. He drew back with his elbows behind him, gaping, almost terrified. She felt as if she were leaning on the might of the gods, and looking at him face to face, she asked him for the Xanth. She demanded it in words abundant and superb. Matho did not hear. He was gazing at her, and in his eyes her garments were blended with her body. The clouding of the stuffs, like the splendor of her skin, was something special and belonged to her alone. Her eyes and her diamonds sparkled. The polish of her nails continued the delicacy of the stones which loaded her fingers. The two clasps of her tunic raised her breast somewhat and brought them closer together, and he, in thought, lost himself in the narrow interval between them, whence there fell a thread holding a plate of emeralds, which could be seen lower down, beneath the violet gauze. She had as earrings two little sapphire scales, each supporting a hollow pearl filled with liquid scent. A little drop would fall every moment through the holes in the pearl and moisten her naked shoulder. Matho watched it fall. He was carried away by ungovernable curiosity, and like a child laying his hand upon a strange fruit, he tremblingly and lightly touched the top of her chest with the tip of his finger. The flesh, which was somewhat cold, yielded with an elastic resistance. This contact, though scarcely a sensible one, shook Matho to the very depths of his nature. An uprising of his whole being urged him towards her. He would fain have enveloped her, absorbed her, drunk her. His bosom was panting, his teeth were chattering, Taking her by the wrists, he drew her gently to him, and then sat down upon a cuirass beside the palm-tree bed, which was covered with a lion's skin. She was standing. He looked up at her, holding her thus between his knees, and repeating, How beautiful you are! How beautiful you are! His eyes, which were continually fixed upon hers, pained her, and the uncomfortableness, the repugnance, increased, in so acute a fashion that Salambo put a constraint upon herself not to cry out, the thought of Shahabarim came back to her, and she resigned herself. Matho still kept her little hands in his own, and from time to time, in spite of the priest's command, she turned away her face and tried to thrust him off by jerking her arms. He opened his nostrils the better to breathe in the perfume which exhaled from her person. It was a fresh indefinable emanation, which nevertheless made him dizzy, like the smoke from a perfuming pan. She smelt of honey, pepper, incense, roses, with another odor still. But how was she thus with him, in his tent, and at his disposal? Someone, no doubt, had urged her. She had not come for the Xanth. His arms fell. And he bent his head, whelmed in sudden reverie. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. To soften him, Salambo said to him in a plaintive voice, What have I done to you that you should desire my death? Your death? She resumed. I saw you one evening by the light of my burning gardens, amid fuming cups and my slaughtered slaves, and your anger was so strong that you bounded towards me and I was obliged to fly. Then terror entered into Carthage. There were cries of the devastation of the towns, the burning of the country seats, the massacre of the soldiery. It was you who had ruined them. It was you who had murdered them. I hate you. Your very name gnaws me like remorse. You are execrated more than the plague and the Roman war. The provinces shudder at your fury. The furrows are full of corpses. I have followed the traces of your fires as though I were traveling behind a Moloch. Matho leaped up. His heart was swelling with colossal pride. He was raised to the stature of a god. With quivering nostrils and clenched teeth she went on. As if your sacrilege were not enough, you came to me in my sleep, covered with the xanth? Your words I do not understand, but I could see that you wished to drag me to some terrible thing at the bottom of an abyss. Matho, writhing his arms, exclaimed, No, no, it was to give it to you, to restore it to you. It seemed to me that the goddess had left her garment for you and that it belonged to you. In her temple or in your house, what does it matter? Are, are you not all-powerful, immaculate, radiant, and beautiful, even as Tenet? And with a look of boundless adoration, he added, Unless, perhaps, you are Tenet? I, Tenet, said Salambo to herself. They left off speaking. The thunder rolled in the distance. Some sheep bleated, frightened by the storm. Oh, come near, he went on. Come near, fear nothing. Formerly, I was only a soldier, mingled with the common herd of the mercenaries, ay, and so meek that I used to carry wood on my back for the others. <laughs> Do I trouble myself about Carthage? The crowd of its people move as though lost in the dust of your sandals, and all its treasures, with the provinces, fleets, and islands, do not raise my envy, like the freshness of your lips and the turn of your shoulders. But I wanted to throw down its walls, that I might reach you to possess you. Moreover, I was revenging myself in the meantime. At present, I crush men like shells, 
and I throw myself upon phalanxes. I put aside the Cerise with my hands. I check the stallions by the nostrils. A catapult would not kill me. <laughs> if you knew how I think of you in the midst of war, sometimes the memory of a gesture or of a fold of your garment suddenly seizes me and entwines me like a net. I perceive your eyes in the flames of the phalaricas and on the gilding of the shields. I hear your voice in the sounding of the cymbals. I turn aside, but you are not there, and I plunge again into the battle. He raised his arms whereon his veins crossed one another, like ivy on the branches of a tree. Sweat flowed down his breast between his square muscles, and his breathing shook his sides with his bronze girdle all garnished with thongs hanging down to his knees, which were firmer than marble. Salambo, who was accustomed to eunuchs, yielded to amazement at the strength of this man. It was the chastisement of the goddess, or the influence of Moloch in motion around her in the five armies. She was overwhelmed with lassitude, and she listened in a state of stupor to the intermittent shouts of the sentinels as they answered one another. The flames of the lamp kindled in the squalls of hot air. There came at times broad lightning flashes, then the darkness increased, and she could only see Matho's eyeballs like two coals in the night. However, she felt that a fatality was surrounding her, that she had reached a supreme and irrevocable moment, and making an effort, she went up again towards the Zamp and raised her hands to seize it. "'What are you doing?' exclaimed Matho. "'I am going back to Carthage,' she placidly replied." He advanced, folding his arms, and with so terrible a look that her heels were immediately nailed, as it were, to the spot. "'Going back to Carthage?' he stammered, grinding his teeth, repeated. "'Going back to Carthage? <laughs> you came to take the Zamph, to conquer me, and then disappear. <laughs> no, no, you belong to me, and no one now shall tear you from here.' Oh, I have not forgotten the insolence of your large, tranquil eyes and how you crushed me with the haughtiness of your beauty. Tis my turn now. You are my captive, my slave, my servant. Call, if you like, on your father and his army, the ancients, the rich, and your whole accursed people. I am the master of three hundred thousand soldiers. I will go and seek them in Lusitania, in the Gauls, and in the depths of the desert, and I will overthrow your town and burn all its temples. The triremes shall float on the waves of blood. I will not have a house, a stone, or a palm tree remaining. And if men fail me, I will draw the bears from the mountains and urge on the lions. Seek not to fly, or I kill you. Pale, and with clenched fists, he quivered like a harp whose strings are about to burst. Suddenly sobs stifled him, and he sank down upon his hams. Ah, oh, forgive me. I am a scoundrel, and viler than scorpions, than mire and dust. Just now, while you were speaking, your breath passed across my face, and I rejoiced like a dying man who drinks lying flat on the edge of a stream. Crush me, if only I feel your feet. Curse me, if only I hear your voice. Do not go, have pity. I love you, I love you. He was on his knees, on the ground, before her, and he encircled her form with both his arms his head thrown back, and his hands wandering. The gold discs hanging from his ears gleamed upon his bronzed neck. 
Big tears rolled in his eyes like silver globes. He sighed caressingly, murmured vague words lighter than a breeze and sweet as a kiss. Salambo was invaded by a weakness in which she lost all consciousness of herself. Something at once inward and lofty, a command from the gods, obliged her to yield herself. Clouds uplifted her, and she fell back, swooning upon the bed amid the lion's hair. The zamp fell and enveloped her. She could see Matho's face bending down above her breast. Moloch, thou burnest me, and the soldier's kisses, more devouring than flames, covered her. She was as though swept away in a hurricane, taken in the might of the sun. He kissed all her fingers, her arms, her feet, and the long tresses of her hair from one end to the other. Carry it off, he said. What do I care? Take me away with it. I abandon the army. I renounce everything. Beyond Gades, twenty days' journey into the sea, you come to an island covered with gold dust, verdure, and birds. On the mountains, large flowers filled with smoking perfumes rock like eternal censers. In the citron trees, which are higher than cedars, milk-colored serpents cause the fruit to fall upon the turf with the diamonds in their jaws. The air is so mild that it keeps you from dying. Oh, I shall find it. You will see. We shall live in crystal grottoes cut out at the foot of the hills. No one dwells in it yet, or I shall become the king of the country. He brushed the dust off her cotherny. He wanted her to put a quarter of a pomegranate between her lips. He heaped up garments behind her head to make a cushion for her. He sought for means to serve her and to humble himself, and he even spread the zamp over her feet as if it were a mere rug. Have you still, he said, those little gazelle's horns on which your necklaces hang? You will give them to me. I love them. For he spoke as if the war were finished. Joyful laughs broke from him. The mercenaries, Hamilcar, every obstacle had now disappeared. The moon was gliding between two clouds. They could see it through an opening in the tent. Ah, what nights have I spent gazing at her. She seemed to me like a veil that hid your face. You would look at me through her. The memory of you was mingled with her beams. Then I could no longer distinguish you. And with his head between her breasts, he wept copiously. And this, she thought, is the formidable man who makes Carthage tremble. He fell asleep. Then disengaging herself from his arm, she put one foot to the ground, and she perceived that her chainlet was broken. The maidens of the great families were accustomed to respect these shackles as something that was almost religious, and Salambo, blushing, rolled the two pieces of the golden chain around her ankles. Carthage, Megara, her house, her room, and the country that she had passed through whirled in tumultuous yet distinct images through her memory, but an abyss had yawned and thrown them far back to an infinite distance from her. The storm was departing, drops of water splashing rarely, one by one, made the tent roof shake. Matho slept like a drunken man, stretched on his side, and with one arm over the edge of the couch. His band of pearls was raised somewhat, and uncovered his brow. His teeth were parted in a smile. They shone through his black beard, and there was a silent and almost outrageous gaiety in his half-closed eyelids. 
Salambo looked at him, motionless, her head bent and her hands crossed. A dagger was displayed on the table of cypress wood at the head of the bed. The sight of the gleaming blade fired her with a sanguinary desire. Mournful voices lingered at a distance in the shade, and like a chorus of geniuses urged her on. She approached it. She seized the steel by the handle. At the rustling of her dress, Matho half-opened his eyes, putting forth his mouth upon her hands, and the dagger fell. Shouts arose. A terrible light flashed behind the canvas. Matho raised the ladder. They perceived the camp of the Libyans, enveloped in great flames. Their reed huts were burning, and the twisting stems burst in the smoke and flew off like arrows. Black shadows ran about distractedly on the red horizon. They could hear the shrieks of those who were in the huts. The elephants, oxen, and horses plunged in the midst of the crowd, crushing it together with the stores and baggage that were being rescued from the fire. Trumpets sounded. There were calls of, Matho! Matho! Some people at the door tried to get in. Come along! Hamilcar is burning the camp of Autoritis! He made a spring. She found herself quite alone. And then she examined the Zamph. And when she had viewed it well, she was surprised that she had not the happiness which she had once imagined to herself. She stood with melancholy before her accomplished dream. But the lower part of the tent was raised, and a monstrous form appeared. Salambo could at first distinguish only the two eyes and a long white beard which hung down to the ground, for the rest of the body, which was cumbered with the rags of a tawny garment, trailed along the earth, and with every forward movement the hands passed into the beard and then fell again. Crawling in this way, it reached her feet, and Salambo recognized the aged Gisco. In fact... The mercenaries had broken the legs of the captive ancients with a brass bar to prevent them from taking to flight, and they were all rotting pell-mell in a pit in the midst of filth. But the sturdiest of them raised themselves and shouted when they heard the noise of platters, and it was in this way that Chisco had seen Salambo. He had guessed that she was a Carthaginian woman by the little balls of sandastrum flapping against her cotherni, and having a presentiment of an important mystery, he had succeeded with the assistance of his companions in getting out of the pit. And then with elbows and hands he had dragged himself twenty paces further on as far as Matho's tent. Two voices were speaking within it. He had listened outside and had heard everything. It is you, she said at last, almost terrified. Yes, it is I, he replied, raising himself on his wrists. They think me dead, do they not? She bent her head. He resumed. Ah, why have the balls not granted me this mercy? He approached so close he was touching her. They would have spared me the pain of cursing you. Salambo sprang quickly back. So much afraid was she of this unclean being who was as hideous as a larva and nearly as terrible as a phantom. I am nearly one hundred years old, he said. I have seen Agathocles. I have seen Regulus and the eagles of the Romans passing over the harvest of the Punic fields. I have seen all the terrors of battles, and the sea encumbered with the wrecks of our fleets. Barbarians whom I used to command have chained my four limbs like a slave that has committed murder. My companions are dying around me, one after the other. 
The odor of their corpses awakes me in the night. I drive away the birds that come to peck out of their eyes, and yet not for a single day have I despaired of Carthage. Though I had seen all the armies of the earth against her, and the flames of the siege overtop the height of the temples, I should have still believed in her eternity. But now all is over. All is lost. The gods execrate her. A curse upon you who have quickened her ruin by your disgrace. She opened her lips. Ah, I was there, he cried. I heard you gurgling with love like a prostitute, and then he told you of his desire, and you allowed him to kiss your hands. But if the frenzy of your unchastity urged you to it, you should have at least done as the fallow deer which hide themselves in their copulations, and not have displayed your shame beneath your father's very eyes. What? she said. Ah! You did not know that the two entrenchments are sixty cubits from each other, and that your Matho, in the excess of his pride, has posted himself just in front of Amilcar. Your father is there, behind you, and could I climb the path which leads to the platform, I should cry to him, Come! and see your daughter in the barbarian's arms. She has put on the garment of the goddess to please him, and in yielding her body to him she surrenders. With the glory of your name, the majesty of the gods, the vengeance of her country, even the safety of Carthage. The motion of his toothless mouth moved his beard throughout its length. His eyes were riveted upon her and devoured her. Panting in the dust, he repeated, Ah, sacrilegious one, may you be accursed, accursed, accursed. Salambo had drawn back the canvas. She held it raised at arm's length. And without answering him, she looked in the direction of Hamilcar. It is this way, is it not? she said. What matters it to you? Turn away! Be gone! Rather crush your face against the earth. It is a holy spot which would be polluted by your gaze. She threw the xanth about her waist and quickly picked up her veils, mantle, and scarf. I hasten thither, she cried, and making her escape, Salambo disappeared. At first she walked through the darkness without meeting anyone, for all were betaking themselves to the fire. The uproar was increasing, and great flames purpled the sky behind. A long terrace stopped her. She turned round to right and left at random, seeking for a ladder, a rope, a stone, something, in short, to assist her. She was afraid of Gisco, and it seemed to her that shouts and footsteps were pursuing her. Day was beginning to break. She perceived a path in the thickness of the entrenchment. She took the hem of her robe, which impeded her in her teeth, and in three bounds she was on the platform. A sonorous shout burst forth beneath her in the shade, the same which she had heard at the foot of the galley staircase, and leaning over she recognized Shahabaram's man and his coupled horses. He had wandered all night between the two entrenchments. Then, disquieted by the fire, he had gone back again, trying to see what was passing in Matho's camp, and, knowing that this spot was nearest to his tent, he had not stirred from it. In obedience to the priest's command, he stood up on one of the horses. Salambo let herself slide down to him, and they fled at full gallop circling the Punic camp in search of a gate.
Maso had re-entered his tent. The smoky lamp gave but little light, and he also believed that Salambo was asleep. Then he delicately touched the lion's skin on the palm tree bed. He called, but she did not answer. He quickly tore away a strip of the canvas to let in some light. The Zamp was gone. The earth trembled beneath thronging feet. Shouts, neighings, and clashing of armor rose in the air, and clarion flourishes sounded the charge. It was as though a hurricane were whirling around him. Immoderate frenzy made him leap upon his arms, and he dashed outside. The long files of the barbarians were descending the mountain at a run, and the Punic squares were advancing against them with a heavy and regular oscillation. The mist, rent by the rays of the sun, formed little rocking clouds, which as they rose gradually discovered standards, helmets, and points of pikes. Beneath the rapid evolutions, portions of the earth, which were still in the shadow, seemed to be displaced bodily. In other places, it looked as if huge torrents were crossing one another, while thorny masses stood motionless between them. Matho could distinguish the captains, soldiers, heralds, and even the serving men who were mounted on asses in the rear. But instead of maintaining his position in order to cover the foot soldiers, Narhavas turned abruptly to the right, as though he wished himself to be crushed by Hamilcar. His horsemen outstripped the elephants, which were slackening their speed, and all the horses, stretching out their unbridled heads, galloped at so furious a rate that their bellies seemed to graze the earth. Then suddenly, Narhavas went resolutely up to a sentry, He threw away his sword, lance, and javelins, and disappeared among the Carthaginians. The king of the Numidians reached Hamilcar's tent, and pointing to his men, who were standing still at a distance, he said, Barca, I bring them to you. They are yours. Then he prostrated himself in token of bondage, and to prove his fidelity, recalled all his conduct from the beginning of the war. First, he had prevented the siege of Carthage and the massacre of the captives, Then he had taken no advantage of the victory over Hanno after the defeat at Utica. As to the Tyrian towns, they were on the frontiers of his kingdom. Finally, he had not taken part in the Battle of the Macaras, and he had even expressly absented himself in order to evade the obligation of fighting against the Sufit. Narhavas had in fact wished to aggrandize himself by encroachments upon the Punic provinces, and had alternately assisted and forsaken the mercenaries according to the chances of victory. But seeing that Hamilcar would ultimately prove the stronger, he had gone over to him. And in his desertion, there was perhaps something of a grudge against Matho, whether on account of the command or of his former love. The Sufit listened without interrupting him. The man who thus presented himself with an army where vengeance was his due was not an auxiliary to be despised, Hamilcar at once divined the utility of such an alliance in his great projects. With the Numidians, he would get rid of the Libyans. Then he would draw off the west to the conquest of Iberia, and, without asking Narhavas why he had not come sooner, or noticing any of his lies, he kissed him, striking his breast thrice against his own. It was to bring matters to an end, and in despair, that he had fired the camp of the Libyans. This army came to him like a relief from the gods, Dissembling his joy, he replied, May the balls favor you. I do not know what the Republic will do for you, but Hamilcar is not ungrateful. The tumult increased. Some captains entered. He was arming himself as he spoke. Come, return. You will use your horsemen to beat down their infantry between your elephants and mine. Courage. Exterminate them. And Narhavas was rushing away when Salambo appeared.
She leaped down quickly from her horse. She opened her ample cloak and, spreading out her arms, displayed the xanth. The leathern tent, which was raised at the corners, left visible the entire circuit of the mountain with its thronging shoulders, and as it was in the center, Salambo could be seen on all sides. An immense shouting burst forth, a long cry of triumph and hope. Those who were marching stopped. The dying leaned on their elbows and turned round to bless her. All the barbarians knew now that she had recovered the Zamph. They saw her and believed that they saw her from a distance. And other cries, but those of rage and vengeance, resounded in spite of the plaudits of the Carthaginians. Thus did the five armies in tears upon the mountain stamp and shriek around Salambo. Hamilcar, who was unable to speak, nodded her his thanks. His eyes were directed alternately upon the Zamph and upon her, and he noticed that her chainlet was broken. Then he shivered, being seized with a terrible suspicion, but soon recovering his impassibility, he looked sideways at Narhavas without turning his face. The king of the Numidians held himself apart in a discreet attitude. On his forehead he bore a little of the dust which he had touched when prostrating himself. At last the Sufit advanced towards him with a look full of gravity. As a reward for the services which you have rendered me, Narhavas, I give you my daughter. Be my son, he added, and defend your father. Narhavas gave a great gesture of surprise, and then he threw himself upon Hamilcar's hands and covered them with kisses. <laughs> Salambo, calm as a statue, did not seem to understand. She blushed a little as she cast down her eyelids, and her long, curved lashes made shadows upon her cheeks. Hamilcar wished to unite them immediately in indissoluble betrothal. A lance was placed in Salambo's hands, and by her offered to Narhavas. Their thumbs were tied together with a thong of ox leather, and corn was poured upon their heads, and the grains that fell around them rang like rebounding hail. That was chapter 11 of Gustave Flaubert's Salambo. Thank you so much for listening. It really means a lot to me that you've made it this far. I know it's a crazy book. Thank you for being here with me. If you want to review it wherever you got this, if it allows you to review it, that would be wonderful. I would really appreciate it. It will help other people find it. If you want to give it a star rating or whatever, that would be awesome too. If you haven't subscribed, please do. And I'll see you back here for chapter 12. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 